Hello and welcome back to Pharmacist Diaries, the podcast that reveals the secret lives of pharmacists from where their journeys began, where they are now and everything in between. I am your host Anisha Patel and today we are joined by Claire Brandish. Claire is an experienced, inspiring, strong-minded, yet very modest antimicrobial pharmacist. Her first experience of working in infectious diseases was at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital for a six-month rotation in clinical governance and risk combined with antimicrobials. This role was a great combination as antimicrobial prescribing is a constant battle between weighing up risks versus taking the medication and the governance aspect of this role is also really similar. This role allowed Claire to experience directorate level work in audits, quality assurance, writing guidelines and implementing NPSA alerts. She fell in love with infectious diseases in this job and hasn't looked back since. She loves the variety in this role, whether she is working alongside consultants and going on ward rounds, making positive changes to prescribing, ensuring patients aren't having unnecessary antibiotics to begin with, or recommending IV to oral switches. She's happy doing it all. She is currently one of several Chief Pharmaceutical Officer Global Health Fellows and has been working in partnership with Nottingham Trent University and Makerere University School of Public Health in Uganda. She has travelled to Uganda several times in the past 12 months and talks in detail about her experience and her newfound love of global health. This is going to be a great episode. Let's dive in. Hi Claire, how are you? Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hi Anisha, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm really pleased that you could join me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and it's the first time we're doing a face-to-face interview. So this is really exciting for me. I know you are a bit nervous, but you've got this. And we're going to have a great conversation and we're going to inspire lots of people and share everything that you've done so far because you have a lot to give. So can you tell us what compelled you to start a career in pharmacy? I mean, I don't think it's anything very exciting, to be honest with you. I think I was good at sciences at school. I looked into forensic science and I looked into pharmacy. And I think I was just drawn to pharmacy and made a decision that that's what I would do. And I'm quite good at sticking by something um, once I've made a decision to do something. So once I'd thought in my mind, pharmacy is the place for me, then that's what I told careers advisors, you know, when they were trying to look at future careers, uh, you know, what sort of things are you good at? What do you think you might do? And I think I just gave them the answer. So, you know, once you give someone an answer, you sometimes just believe it and follow it through. What was your perception of what pharmacists do back then? Do you remember? So my mum was actually a maths teacher and she had this book of careers, basically every kind of career um, that you could consider doing and, you know, the strengths and weaknesses. And I, I think I knew that pharmacists were sort of the drug experts and that they were quite balanced people that took measured responses. And I just think it fitted with my personality as well as my love of science. And if I didn't do pharmacy, then I'd probably do forensics. <laughs> and has it lived up to your expectations? I think... Things have taken probably a very different path to what people who I went to university would have 
thought that I would do. I think everyone thought I would do aseptics or something like that. And actually, you know, circumstances and opportunities threw themselves at me and, and I took maybe a different path, but I love what I do and I wouldn't change that. And I've stuck with, again, you know, I've been in antimicrobials for quite a long time now, um, which some people may think is boring. Like I've not tried a lot of other areas of pharmacy, but I still see it as a generalist specialist role. So I get to see lots of different patients within that and specialities within my own speciality. So for me, I, I still think it's really exciting and really interesting. And I can't see myself really moving away from antimicrobials anytime soon. And when you finished um, your degree in pharmacy, where did you sort of start your career as a pre-reg? So very bizarrely, I, I did my pre-reg at Stoke Mandeville Hospital, but when it was the original hospital, so it wasn't Buckinghamshire Healthcare Trust. Um, so this was the local hospital for me. I um, did summer placements here, so I knew the hospital and I loved it. And I was the only candidate for the job for the pre-reg pharmacy job. So they only had two posts and one was a split post with Bradford. So I knew coming to the interview, I was the only candidate. But in my head, I thought, how embarrassing is this going to be if I don't get this job? That's going to be worse than if I was up against 50 people and didn't get the job. So I think really early on, I probably didn't have a lot of confidence in my in myself. But like I say, the people here um, at Stoke knew me and they knew that I was a hard worker and that was sort of committed um, and would show up on time. So they offered me the job and I did a year here. I mean, I did a pre-reg with one other pharmacist, so I can... I understand your perspective in terms of joining a maybe a smaller hospital with not as many pre-regs, but actually, in some ways, I got a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. And I think the training and education that we received throughout that year was much more specific than if you've got 12 to 15 pre-regs who are running about on all the wards and lots of people that need to get involved to look after them, that you really get to know the staff because you're day in, day out with the same group of people. So, I mean, that's in terms of confidence boosting, I found that quite useful for me. Mm. Um, but I was still very timid in terms of confidence. And I mean, I explained in my first episode that I really struggled to get a job and I was really terrible at interviews and I didn't know how to sell myself. I didn't have that confidence and I was always afraid of applying to a big teaching hospital um, because I had previously been rejected. And when I applied to Oxford, you know, I was really, really nervous kind of competing with that higher caliber of pharmacists or what I thought was a higher caliber of pharmacists. But I, I got in and, I'm, and I made it and here I am and things are really different for me now. But I think my experiences have kind of made me who I am and that's probably what's happened to you and you just... Maybe yeah. haven't thought about it. I mean, when I when I look back at some of the things I did in my pre-reg, I went on consultant ward rounds and wrote up care plans and um, covered wards with with remote support, but somebody wasn't looking over my shoulder all the time. So, and I respond well to that sort of form of training. You know, if I'm given the independence to do to do the job, I will go away and do it to the best of my abilities but knowing that I've got somebody to go back to and check things through with. So there was always a point of call and there was always support. And like you say, from a lot of the senior pharmacists, I had 
you know, great education and training. Um, but it was, you know, it was done sort of more, you go and try and you try and be a pharmacist and then come back when you've reached the limit of what you can do. And that, in terms of that independence, is that something you've naturally had as a person or family members are quite independent and you've kind of caught on to that? Yeah, massively independent. I mean, I, I see this in my daughter now and I sort of curse it sometimes. But, um, you know, I was the eldest of three and my mum went back to university when I was 11. So, you know, we had to pull our weight hugely around the house. So I think, I think having that experience as a child and sort of having to grow up quite quickly, I would say, and take a lot of responsibility, cook the dinners, look after my brother and sister. You know, I had a job at 11 um, and I loved it. I loved earning money and spending my own money. So all throughout, you know, between 11 and university, I sort of had a job all the time, you know, doing various things babysitting, ironing, worked in a bakery, I did paper rounds. Um, and I worked my summers and every other holiday um, in a local community pharmacy, in an independent pharmacy. And the, the pharmacist there was amazing because he'd get prescriptions and he'd say, right, we've got a prescription for a cream. We can send it away or we could make it. Should we make it together? You know, and, and he wanted to share his knowledge of pharmacy and making creams and things like that with me and it was you could see that he enjoyed passing that on um, because a lot of pharmacists at that point obviously weren't doing that. That's quite exciting actually I never really experienced making creams my parents owned a pharmacy for 20 years and I'm sure my parents were doing it but I don't think I necessarily I don't think I was exposed at that young age, and that's not why I'm a pharmacist today. <laughs> yeah, no, I was the complete opposite as a child. My parents did everything for me, and I don't want to insult them or, or be rude about them, but that's what they thought was what they should be doing, is, is providing that comfort and allowing us to be children and for them to be the parents. So all the way, even up until university, I feel like, you know, my dad paid for me to go to university. I didn't need a job. He, he didn't turn around and actually say to me, well, actually, you should go out and earn your own money. I wish he had, um, because I didn't, I didn't get that sort of level of independence until I was sort of 20. And it was really late. So now I'm a parent. Hopefully I will be able to teach Lily those things early on. I mean, she's two and she has to load the washing machine on Saturday mornings, you know. <laughs> I don't I'm think that's a bad thing. Early. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad thing. It's interesting, though, because my parents didn't want me working when I was at university. So in the holidays, they were fine with that. But they didn't want me working and having a part-time job whilst I was at university. That was the one thing that they sort of almost put their foot down on. I don't know whether they realised that I would split too much time or maybe spend too much time working and worrying about money and not studying. But I was happy and it was it was the right thing to do, I think, at the time because I applied myself during university. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And all of these skills, though you probably don't realise, have led up to possibly the person that you are today. Throughout the year that we worked together, you were very inspiring and I looked up to you the entire time and I know that your colleagues will say the same and they'll listen into this episode and be like yep 
you're right. Um, and I know you don't. <laughs> Sounds like that. a very strange thing to say to me. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true. It's really, really true. And you've done a lot with your career, um, and you should definitely be proud of where you are today. But after you finished your pre-reg, so did you know exactly what you wanted to do next? So my chief pharmacist at the time said go to London. That was his advice. He was like, go and experience something different, go to London. And actually, my boyfriend lived in London, and we'd been together since we were 16. So I had decided that I was going to move to London and look for a job then. And I applied to the um, STEP programme, so that's a structured training and educational programme in London. I don't think I had any idea how many applicants there were again for this hospital because it was a huge number it was a really popular program I went round for a study day it wasn't a study day it was like a open day sorry and I I spoke to the people at the stands and one stand stood out to me um, which was Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Woolwich so you'd got Guys and Tommies, Lewisham, Kings but Queen Elizabeth the people that I spoke to just sounded great and I arranged with them to go and see the hospital one weekend. So if you can imagine going to see someone at a weekend, I mean, now it's just so busy, isn't it? You wouldn't be able to spend any time, I don't think. But at that time, it wasn't busy at the weekends. And I spent like an hour and a half talking to them about what it was like to work at the hospital. And I knew I wanted to work there. And then when I went to this interview, it was awful. It was just the worst interview ever. And when they phoned and offered me the job, I said to them, I cannot believe that you are offering me this job. Um, The person that was offering me the job said, yeah, that interview was not great. But I think they knew that I was just really nervous and that I had been to the hospital and we'd discussed lots of things about pre-reg and Queen Elizabeth. And I think they could see through that. So they gave me a chance. And then I stayed at Queen Elizabeth and I did the STEP programme. So I did six months at Orpington Treatment Centre, which is um, a part of King's now. And it's quite a small remote hospital that just took elective surgery. So they did pre-op assessments and things like that. And I did six months care of the elderly at Lewisham. And I loved that. And I think I said after I did my pre-reg, I wouldn't do care of the elderly because I'd done quite a bit in my pre-reg and I wanted to do something really exciting like renal or liver or something very specialist. But actually, I got a huge amount out of doing that six-month rotation. I nearly considered staying there for a full year, so doing another six-month placement, just because I was involved in falls clinics, post-take ward rounds for care of the elderly, post-take ward rounds for everyone else, anti-coag clinics plus looking after the wards, the three care of the elderly wards. And I I loved it. It was so full on, really tiring. But I I just loved the clinical pharmacy and how much I learned in that time. And I think also I'd realised that actually elderly patients can often be on lots of medicines. So from our perspective, there's quite a lot of interventions that you can make. And certainly working in the Falls Clinic, you know, I was helping to set up the role of a pharmacist in a falls clinic. And that was what my project was on. So it was just really seeing what we could offer. And actually, it was a lot about de-prescribing, although I don't know that you'd necessarily have called it that back then. It was just stopping medicines that caused falls. 
So it was, I loved it. Yeah, it's quite good. I mean, even in my pre-reg, which I haven't seen again, and maybe because I haven't been involved, is that we had pharmacists working in the pre-op assessment clinic, mm. and pharmacists had their own little office set up, and the pre-reg was allowed to do a full drug history, document it on a fresh drug chart, nice and clean, and then actually prescribe all the, the medications, basically list them out, and then obviously get the doctor to sign them when the patient actually arrives. But obviously, the drug chart is written to perfection because we've done it, and we're amazing at that. So, <laughs> But that's what I was doing at Orpington Treatment exactly. Centre, and actually a lot of the interventions, again, were around the herbal remedies or the supplements and stopping them prior to, to surgery because of the bleeding risk. Mm, um, exactly. So, yeah. And you were making interventions before they come in for operations and kind of making sure that you have that safety check. So care of the elderly was an interest of yours and what else did you fall in love with? So then my final rotation, I thought about staying at Lewisham for the last six months. But I actually went back to Queen Elizabeth and I did a six-month rotation in clinical governance and risk and antimicrobial. So back then it was sort of about the time that all those NPSA alerts were coming out and clinical governance was just sort of taking off as, a, as an area. So I got to do that split post. And actually the two worked really well together because, you know, antimicrobials, there's a huge amount of weighing up risks with taking them and, and using them. Um, and so I got to learn the skills around the governance aspects, I think. Lots of audits, lots of sort of quality assurance, implementing the risk alerts and things like that. So I remember saying to my line manager, I don't really think I want to do the clinical governance aspects of this. And she, she very politely just said, we'll see. Because that was what the role was. It, it wasn't negotiable. I wanted to do the antimicrobials, but she was like, let's just see how it goes. And actually, as with everything, you know, I'm told that I've got to do something. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it properly. So that was the start, I think, of all the implementation of the NPSA alerts and sort of that safety aspect. And then after I'd done that six months, that became a job role in itself. And then there was an opportunity to do antimicrobials as a secondment for six months um, because it was the same time that Department of Health were pump priming hospitals to have antimicrobial pharmacists. So for the next six months, I basically worked really hard to find out how I could prove the worth of an antimicrobial pharmacist. So how could we reduce antibiotics? How could we intervene or or assess the C. diff cases and help to reduce those. So there's a lot of infection prevention work and a lot of just looking at guidelines and reduction in antimicrobials. So on the back of that, we were able to put a business case together to continue that antimicrobial job for the trust. You do realise you were about six at this time, right? So I'd finished my <laughs> diploma. <laughs> I, I, so I did the JPB diploma and I'd finished that. And then I did a secondment. And I did have a wonderful line manager that supported me throughout that. And she, she basically gave me that directorate training as, on the job training. And a lot of it you do have to figure out for yourself. But she was always there as a troubleshooter and a guide. And I'm really grateful, you know, 
it, it was a really great experience to do that and to actually realize that if you don't <laughs> if you can't prove your worth then the job won't exist so it was quite a lot riding on that obviously back then we were using paper drug charts so i assume a lot of your kind of data collection was manual manual yeah mm, it still is we're still paper here so it's yes it's it was you know it was hard but then almost because it was a new job i had a blank canvas so, so i could make that service whatever i wanted it to look like and the consultant microbiologists were brilliant so we worked really well together and i find with antimicrobials a lot of it is just knowing to go to the right person or seeking out the people that want to help you to make changes so actually some kind of knowledge of the hospital and knowledge of the people and who to go to was really helpful so you know getting to know the medical director so that you could get them on side to help with the consultant body for instance was unbelievably helpful and it didn't it doesn't almost matter what you know sometimes you need to get that information to the right people so again links with education and training are key I know I've had this discussion as well before is that networking and kind of communication and talking to people who are outside of pharmacy as well as inside pharmacy are key aspects mm. of learning in order to do your job efficiently. I mean I had that when I when I worked here and I was helping to cover the pediatric role. There were so many services that were coming to my mind and it was just like how do I get these done and who do I need on my side and you know who's the lead consultant for this and you know, you just got to make friends with them and you've got to find a way to make that connection with them to help yourself, but also to help them. A lot of the time you're helping maybe a reduction in costs because we had that big project last year of cost saving. So, you know, you're having to really figure out where we're high spending. And sometimes you can use JAC or Bedford or whatever program to trace our, our usage and our cost or maybe how much you're spending in terms of the supplies and from your, you know, um, procurement perspective. But actually, the prescribers need to be in discussion with you because they're the ones who are driving what we're actually prescribing. So your connection with them is extremely important. So I feel that that sometimes people don't realize this or they they know they need to do it, but they don't prioritize it. It's my first priority when I start a job. If I'm in a specific area, like right now I'm doing antimicrobials and I have made a huge effort to meet up with the consultants individually to understand what they're sort of driving in terms of services, like, you know, what specialty they're in, like how they work, how we can work better together. We've been thinking about maybe setting up Microsoft Teams so we can highlight our patients quickly and kind of when they're doing their stewardship rounds that if I'm not around and I'm working from home, I can just send them a quick message, go and check on this person. So we're, we're really identifying better ways to work with each other. And I'm sure, I mean, when you started this job, those same concepts still exist. But now we've got loads of IT and we've got all these apps. You know, I've told you recently that I discovered Trello for project management and it's amazing. I mean, I love that. I love that thing. <laughs> it is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and you can have multiple people on it and everyone knows kind of who's working on what or if, if a project gets finished when you're not around, like, you know, B's completed it and signed it off the list or Kate's doing it. Yeah. So it, it really works. It's your to-do list that you I share know. with others. I know. I use it for my <laughs> podcast and it, it works wonders yeah. for me. So... Yeah, um, I, I'm sad that I didn't discover it while I was working with you. But 
I didn't really have a team. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have anyone you had to, to share, share it with me. you, yourself and I. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the point being is that you obviously discovered a lot of directorate level work at an early stage and you realized how you could make an impact as a pharmacist, which is really incredible. And it's really, I wouldn't say it's lucky, but it's really useful that you learned that at an early stage because now that you've got that basic grounding and what you need to do to build a service and that's exactly what you've been doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think relationships are key because I made a lot of mistakes along the way, don't get me wrong. So, you know, I would go to an orthopaedic MDT for the first time and I, I, what I remember telling them that they couldn't use kefiroxime and, you know, that was definitely not the way to deliver that message. That was, that was not friendly. So, so that was a real disaster, but it's what you do with that. You know, you've got a choice so you can carry on doing something that doesn't work or you can think actually that was a really bad way to enter that discussion you know why don't I go and find out what someone's doing and why they're doing it and try and understand what somebody else is up against because you know a prescriber wants to make the right decision but maybe they don't have the right stock in their cupboard you know it can be a really you know really simple practical issue spending time in A&E for instance you know they they had this thing where they thought they couldn't shake Piptaz to reconstitute it. We were going to have to buy these really expensive pre-made vials in at one point. And then they realized that they were getting it mixed up with another drug. And it just like, you know, Chinese whispers, one person had said, oh, you can't shake that. You just got to wait for it to reconstitute. And then everybody believed it, but it was sort of built on this lack of information. So sometimes you've just got to go down to the place that you're trying to make change and just see what people are up to and why they're up to it. And what aspect of that six months did you love so much that you've followed in terms of infectious diseases now? Because that was where you sort of discovered it. Yeah, um, for me, it was probably working with a consultant and doing the sort of the ward rounds, basically going and seeing patients and making changes so that patients were prescribed the right drugs and they weren't having unnecessary antibiotics which you know sometimes you know depending on what you're using but you can you can give somebody a nephrotoxic drug and then they can have renal issues because of that but actually they don't need that drug or they don't need an IV so we can switch them to an oral antibiotic get them home I, I just really enjoyed enjoyed every aspect I think of of that six months to be honest with you it wasn't just the ward rounds I enjoyed writing the guidelines I enjoyed learning about infectious diseases I enjoyed even the auditing I really enjoyed seeing improvements small improvements but still improvements mm. And do you remember back then what sort of courses or was there anything available online that you did in terms of improving your knowledge on antimicrobials? I remember going to conferences, to be honest with you, going to conferences. And again, that's where the networking comes in. So some people that I'm still in contact with now, I would have met at a BSAT conference, for instance, and then they can put you in contact with other people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I recently, even my, um, our clinical fellow at the Evelina, he's just done a PhD uh, with a pharmacist. So he loves talking to pharmacists. And hey, I love to get to know people. So it's easy conversation. And um, he's told me about a few really good um, 
courses online. So Stanford University have given, uh, they've got a free antimicrobial stewardship course online. Mm. And then there's the um, European uh, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Group, ESPID. Um, and they've got a free course, which is usually you have to be a member and pay. So in terms of antimicrobials and getting a really good basic understanding, now I'm in this role and I'm new to it. Though I have a good basic understanding, I feel like a, I mean, CBD will do me some good. Um, it might sort of recharge some things that I've got in the back of my head that I haven't been able to use, but now I'll be able to use it on ward rounds. So I'm quite excited about doing that. Finding the time to get it done is another question. But it's always good to kind of know what's out there. And part of that is through networking and knowing what other people are doing. At the time that I was, a, was sort of doing the directorate antimicrobial role at Queen Elizabeth, there was the option to go and do a master's in, in infectious diseases. But I wasn't ready for that. I felt like I was really learning the role of a directorate pharmacist and my own speciality. So I was quite happy to go away and and just look into, you know, what is group A strep and what does that cause and how do you treat it? And actually probably writing the guidelines was how I learnt to understand the, the different diseases, if you like, because yeah. I was doing literature searching and you know, looking at NICE guidance and PHE guidance. And so, you know, there's a number of documents on there that sort of go through the diagnosis and the management yeah, and the true. epidemiology. So, you know, PHE still have all of that available. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's good for people who are listening as well to obviously remember to use that as well. I'll put some additional resources in the show notes. So after you did that six months, uh, where did you go after that? So I stayed. I got the antimicrobial job and I stayed there until 2014. So I'd been at Queen Elizabeth for about 10 years before I moved. So I did my step programme, which involved the rotations, but then I stayed in this antimicrobial job and I loved it. And I didn't want to leave. I would have stayed there forever, I think. But I had my children in London and then I looked to move back closer to be near my parents so a job came up at Buckinghamshire Healthcare Trust so sort of trust that I did my pre-reg at and I went for the interview and I got that post so it was the same job on paper is what I would say so identical to the job that I was doing in London I was doing four days antimicrobial pharmacist job and I moved and I came to Buckinghamshire Healthcare Trust and I was doing four days antimicrobial but it was so different so different you know I didn't have a network when I moved back here and I you know I knew what Stoke was like 10 years ago um, before it it was a different trust but yes I, I didn't know what Buckinghamshire Healthcare Trust was like and so it was completely new in that respect and then a lot of people had taken on the role I think over the years at BHT so whereas I'd moved from a job role that I'd been in for a number of years and was happy doing and I like I say I'd sort of made it how I wanted it to be I then moved to a role where somebody else had set set things up and lots of different people had had their own ideas about how things should work and it didn't feel like my job if that makes sense so Completely. I needed to make it mine do you remember how you sort of transitioned to make it more of your own for a starter 
the consultant microbiologist that, that led on antimicrobial stewardship didn't really want to engage with me, I think, in the beginning because I think he'd felt so let down that he'd had a new pharmacist over the years and had got to know them and worked really well with them and then they'd moved on or they'd left the trust for whatever reason and I just think he'd got to the point where he didn't believe that I was going to stay. And I, I remember saying to him in one of our first meetings, like, I'm here to stay. I, you know, I promise you I'm serious about this. But I don't think he quite believed that. And he was very stuck in his ways and not massively open to, to change. So that was difficult. But actually, as we worked together, I got to know his ways, he got to know mine, and, and we found a good way to work together. And, you know, he was a brilliant microbiologist, and he, he ended up retiring, sadly, after about a year. So he never really saw me stick it out, although we're still in contact now. But, you know, it's, it was just felt like a real shame that I'd almost come too late to sort of help him in a, in a better way. But, yeah. And have belief. And have belief that things can get better. Yes, mm. yeah. You've been here for a while now. So how have the services sort of changed since you've been in the role? Gosh, it's been five years now. Mm. You've got a team. I've got a team for starters. That's number one. Yeah, so really exciting. And an excellent team at that. <laughs> Let's just get that out there. <laughs> it is the best team. Like I feel incredibly fortunate that I have this wonderful team of, I, I guess we all share a very similar ethos, don't we? We are all very hardworking. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And um, yeah, and I, very lovely people that I work with. You look after each we other. We look after each other, yeah. And you all have enthusiasm for infectious diseases, for sure. Absolutely. And, and you all like to grow. And Nalanka, um, she's our infectious diseases assistant, um, which was a brand new post. And we didn't really know what this post was going to do or be capable of. But she she really holds the team together and the rest of the department, actually. And she just brings a lot of joy. And no job is too, too big for her. She'll just get on and do it. Oh, and I covered HIV when I started here. So, yeah. That was a new role for me. So in London, that was very much a separate job because of the number of patients. And we do have a decent number of patients here, but that just sort of fell under the umbrella of antimicrobials. So um, I have Kate working with me now, which is wonderful because we had worked together before she took up the HIV post, but so much better when you've got a real specialist dealing with those patients and prescribing and seeing patients in clinic and giving that area the time and the resource that they need. Mm. And obviously you were a parent of two children, mm -hmm. right, when you moved to Buckinghamshire. Yes. So how was it juggling working and parenting? Yeah, in some ways it was easier, um, but I did my IP course when Violet, my youngest, was still very small because um, I came back from mat leave when I, when she was seven months old not as young as yours um, but yes and that was that felt like luxury actually going back to university at that point because it was me time it was my time and I really enjoyed the learning and I was really strict about 
time time that I would be studying and then time that I would be with family and time that I would be at work. So I was probably better in some ways for time management when I was under that pressure. I believe you did the weekend course, right? Where you, yeah, yeah rather than going once a week, it was two, two days on the weekend. Yes, I did the weekend course. Was it every week or? No, it wasn't every week. Felt like it was every other week, but I might be wrong about that. But because it felt like my time, it didn't feel like I'd worked the weekend in the hospital where you sort of take a couple of days back and you need to kind of recover from that. It felt like a different space, I guess. So it's because you love what you do. Right. That's why. I've <laughs> it felt this. like a break from home yeah. as well. <laughs> so actually I could do that. Go go to Reading at the weekend, do study and then come back to work on the Monday. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm here today. I know. After work, and it doesn't Crazy. feel like I'm doing anything work-related because I, I love it. I love, <laughs> I love talking to you. I'm so happy to see everyone today, and this, you know, face-to-face interview is it's good instead of having to do everything remotely. But um, when you're passionate about something, I think it doesn't feel like you're. It's not a chore. No, it doesn't feel like work, does it? And you love learning. So I guess that IP course was perfect for you because you were growing and then implementing what you were using on the course in in your job. And that's that was a turning point for me, actually, at Bucks, because that made me and forced me to go back into ICU on the ward round. So my DMP was an intensivist. And that's what forced me to go back working with the MDT on the wards, going round seeing patients. And that's what I'd missed when I moved back here. Mm. So I got a very good induction into the department, incredibly good induction into the department here in the pharmacy. But actually what was missing was all the other connections. So all the other people that you work with that you value so much as an antimicrobial pharmacist, and the majority of those are outside your department because you can influence them differently. I mean, the reason I love antimicrobials, I think, is because it covers a little bit of everything. So you, you do your education and training, you do your governance, you do, there are financial aspects, I don't particularly enjoy them, but I appreciate that they're very necessary and you can prove worth. Um, and then you can do your guideline and your policy development. So there's quite a bit of writing within that. And then you've got your clinical aspects as well so for me it's a very mixed role and I enjoy all those aspects I don't know that I would be necessarily happy doing it all the time because I think I just I get a bit itchy feet I guess and I want to you know if I'm a bit bored of doing education and training I can go off and do an audit or something like that so for me it's just about doing different different parts of the roles on the days that you feel that that's warranted. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I cover a lot of wards as well, and I do love it, but you tend to get stuck on the ward all day because there's always something that you can do and you can spend your whole nine to five with the patients. And the one thing I like about working in infectious diseases is there's so much variety in terms of what you do as a pharmacist. And you do get this as a ward pharmacist as well. But on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I come into work, 
I get my list of patients that I kind of look at. I'm doing my stewardship in the morning with a cup of coffee at the computer. And then I go straight up to ward round and spend time with the consultants. We do our stewardship rounds and I get to spend time with them. I'm learning from them all the time. Then, you know, queries are coming up from outpatients in my email. I've got to work on some guidelines. You know, maybe there's some formulary issues. Um, at the moment, obviously, with COVID, we've got a lot of patients who need posting medication. So I'm always sorting out these queries and trying to get, I mean, at the Evelina, we've got patients who live extremely far away. Not everyone's local in our area. So we are posting out a lot of um, specialist medications out to patients. So making sure they've got their supplies, especially HIV patients, we're having mm. to post out for three to six months. So there's always a lot of variety. And I, I guess maybe I don't like being on the ward all day. And I love the variety in the role where you're just moving around and going to different meetings, MDTs. I mean, I'm doing a lot of OPAT work at the moment as well and helping patients to get home. So, you know, you're counseling the patients, you know, speaking to the parents, you're discussing with the cult consultants like what choices of antibiotics to use you've got to contact the patient's local nursing team to make sure they can come and administer the drug or is the mum going to do it can we train her up so there's there's a lot of variety in terms of even organizing that following policy forms you know educating the families so I really really I'm, I'm loving it I'm really enjoying that I mean it's difficult at the moment because I do still have ward cover because we're a little bit short sometimes in terms of staff. I do a lot of education and training as well. So it is quite hectic and I, and I find it quite difficult to manage my time, but I am really, really enjoying it. And obviously it's it's got a lot to offer. And I mean, I've seen you working and you guys thoroughly <clears throat> enjoy the job and you're always having in-depth conversations with each other about different <laughs> I know. And you love it, I love I, it. I know. I miss that when yeah. I was here because I was on my own, obviously. I mean, my role was, it, I wasn't within a specific education team. And it was always nice to see you guys, you know, spending time to get together. So I think that aspect of the role is really fun. It's really great having a, a room full of pharmacists that you can use as your sounding boards and just like, this is what I've done and this is where I've looked. And would you think about anything else? And you can really share the wackiest ideas sometimes but it's it's okay it's just sort of thinking outside the box sometimes and even just talking things through sometimes helps you to realize that you're you're right you just needed to sound it out mm. and I feel actually and I'm sure it's the case with a lot of of teams is that the consultants love us they love pharmacists. <laughs> they love having a pharmacist on board. They're so grateful. I, I must have get told about, I'm not even doing that much yet, but I get told two to three times a week, like, we're so glad you're here. Oh, it's because we see things through. Yeah. I do think that we are starter finishers. I think that's one of our sort of, I don't know, benefit, I don't know, what do we call this? Personality traits. Personality or... traits, yeah. I don't think we like to leave things unfinished. Yeah. I really hate handing things over to other people. Me too. Yeah, it's a problem, but it's... I have to work have on that. To do it. Yeah, you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. You have to do it, and then you're sending the text message the next day, has it been done? No. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, though, don't you? Yeah, I mean, pharmacists, we can be quite controlling in that way. Um, I definitely am, and I'm learning to change. Hello friends and fellow pharmacists. I'm interrupting our episode today because I want to remind you about the recent news I shared on last week's episode. If you haven't listened to it already, please go check it out. 
I don't usually have adverts in my podcast, but this is something really important and I want to share it with you. As of last week, my husband and I decided that we want to collaborate and find ways to help you to become the best version of yourself. We want to help you focus on what matters in your life on a day-to-day basis by sharing blogs, videos and email content around three main concepts, eat, live and move. Eat the food that will nourish and heal your body. Live a life that is purposeful and productive, manage stress and improve the quality of sleep that you have to help restore and repair. Move your body the way it was designed to move. Build a foundation first through correcting your posture, joint limitations and muscular imbalances. Then layer on physical activity that you enjoy and can sustain. Currently, all the content on the website is available for free and you'll receive regular email content when you subscribe via the website. Please go and check it out at www.stayhole.co.uk. I promise it'll be worth it. Don't forget www.stayhole.co.uk. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so I mean, you've obviously in this role in, and you've been here for five years, but some exciting things have happened in the last year or so. Yeah. Um, obviously, you, you, you've you uh, joined a fellowship. So can you tell us about that? So probably the first thing that happened was December 2018, where I saw this, I think it must have been on Twitter, but I saw that there was going to be a Commonwealth antimicrobial pharmacy, uh, antimicrobial partnership scheme with Commonwealth countries. So there were sort of four African countries looking for UK partners with a focus on antimicrobial stewardship. And this was on Twitter and it was sort of like news coming now. And it was through um, the Tropical Health Education Trust. And I hadn't actually heard of them before. But anyway, I looked into it and I thought, wow, this is really exciting. This is like another level of antimicrobial stewardship. And then Kate, who's a passionate member of our team, was like, we have to apply for this. And I was like, okay, Kate, not a problem. That's fine. I don't think we'll ever get it. And Jane, our chief pharmacist, was also like, you guys have to apply for this. So I think I very much went along with it. I think we let Kate go to the inception, the sort of... um, the conference where we found out a bit more about it. But even when we were sort of looking to go to sort of offer ourselves up as a UK partner, I never thought in my wildest dreams that this would actually come to fruition. We were trying to find a link within our hospital with one of the partners. So it was Tanzania, Uganda, Ghana and Zambia. So how do you find a partner in one of those African countries that you have absolutely zero networking or you don't know anybody in those countries? What do you do? Just phone them up and pick a random hospital. But we we did a bit of digging and we found out that the National Spinal Injury Centre had a link with Tanzania, one of the hospitals in Tanzania. By the time we looked into all of this, and we did actually just phone up this this hospital in Kilimanjaro, and we just said, look, do you want to be our friend? Can we be your partner? And they, 
They were really great. Once we got through Switchboard, it was brilliant. They, they said, thank you very much, but actually we're already partnered with somebody in Northumberland. So that was just a new, new area for us. Like, how do you get these networks? How do you know that they exist? And so we went back to the drawing board and we really didn't think that we were going to find a partnership. But Kate basically put us on LinkedIn and said, look, we're a team of three pharmacists. We really want to be involved in these schemes. Does anybody want us? We will work hard and be enthusiastic. And that's about all we can offer you. Because we have no experience of this. We know antimicrobial stewardship, but we don't know the first thing about antimicrobial stewardship in any of these African countries. And this wonderful professor, Dr. Linda Gibson, got in contact from Nottingham Trent University. She's a public health professor. And she said, I saw your post on LinkedIn, really excited about this. Let's talk about it further. And Kate actually spoke to her on Christmas Eve and said, we are in. We, we don't know the first thing about what, what we could offer you or um, what sort of scheme you'd want to set up, what sort of project. But they had a partnership in existence with Makiri University in Uganda and they'd done loads of work together. So they have a 10-year history um, and a partnership between the two universities. And we were going to add in as the NHS partner. So we read the proposal, which was very much written by Dr. David Masoki. Who, so he's the lead partner in Uganda and he's um, he was a professor for public health out there. And via very polite email exchange, we realised that we were going to go for this application. And again, even though they were an amazing partnership, we really didn't think that we'd have a chance. We really thought that the partnerships would just go to all the larger London teaching hospitals and that we wouldn't stand a chance. But then we got offered it. I remember the day you got the email. We could not believe it. We could not you guys were it. jumping up and down in excitement. It was a big moment. I know. It's quite exciting. So what happened after that? I've never wanted to do anything like this. I've never wanted to work away. Like I did my degree in Cardiff and I felt homesick then. Like that was, that was hard for me. This so is the, like my dream job. <laughs> the thought this of is... going to Africa, I was like, oh my life, what am I doing? What am I doing? I've got two children. But anyway, we, um, we spoke to Nottingham Trent University and we got the, got the offer in February and B and I were on a flight in April to go out and do the scoping visit. And it was just a week, but I had that moment where I was on the plane going, what am I doing? I cannot believe that I'm doing this. What was I thinking? How could I just leave my family like this? It was all fine. And... It, was, it has just been the most amazing experience. I think you said earlier that, you know, one of your gaps is research. I've always sort of seen that as a big gap in everything that I've covered, but I've never known how to get into it. It scared me quite a lot. And here were two universities just basically, you know, they, they do research every day. It's in their every waking breath. You know, they're just they're excited, they're ambitious. We actually got told that our, our application was way too ambitious and could we kind of tone it down because it was a one health approach to antimicrobial stewardship in the Wakizo district in Uganda. And what we'd set out to do was actually a huge volume of work. And when I say we, I really mean 
David and his team out in Uganda were going to be the ones that haven't, were going to have to do the bulk of this. But it involved training the healthcare practitioners at the hospital, but also in the health centres in the Wakizo district. And then they would train the trainer. So they would train the community health workers who are unbelievable. Again, we didn't know anything about the health system before we went out to Uganda. Um, but B and I actually went out to the field office to meet these community health workers and they are completely voluntary. They work for nothing and they they work unbelievably hard to do track and tra- trace for things like TB um, and they treat children with malaria and they look after the health of their community and they do this for the love of it. They, they deliver babies in the middle of the night. They'll get woken up to go and do that. And they do it because they care about their community. And it's very sort of old fashioned in that way, but really inspiring. If you want to speak to inspiring people, it is the community health workers. Just so much enthusiasm, so much love. And, you know, when you ask them sort of, well, what's your biggest challenge? You know, they don't talk about what they don't have at all. You know, it really lifts you and makes you think, well, I've got absolutely nothing to complain about. You know, we moan about not having staff. They don't have running water, you know, in some of the clinics that they work in. So, so yes, we were, we set out to involve the community health workers. We set out to do household surveys on what their beliefs are in terms of antimicrobials, um, use in humans and animals. So we were also pulling in the veterinary professors and students considering how antibiotics are used in the environment. So how antibiotics are got rid of in terms of waste and things like that. And then as the project evolved, we also brought in the schools. So we, when we went back in September, we actually visited two primary schools and we went through all the infection prevention control stuff with them. And we went through all the sort of simple messages about antimicrobials and when to use them, when to ask for them, not to buy them from pharmacies, um, drug stores and things like that. And we twinned two primary schools in Uganda with two primary schools in Buckinghamshire. So when we did the World Antibiotic Awareness Week, they all produced material that we then shared between each other because, you know, one thing that antimicrobial resistance tells you is it doesn't matter what colour you are, where you're from, it can affect you. It doesn't matter how much money you have. AMR is a big global issue, whoever you are. And, you know, COVID is, is sort of demonstrating that right now as well, that it can it can affect anybody. So, yeah. An incredible trip. An incredible journey. Yes, there's just so much to talk about, really, with Uganda. <laughs> they, you forgot that they also came here. So, yes, we had reciprocal visits. We had... Two pharmacists were meant to come together, but actually they came separately. So we had Ismail, who is the only pharmacist at Entebbe Regional uh, Referral Hospital. Um, and he spent a week with us, which was wonderful. Just showing him things that we do in terms of stewardship. Also just processes for medicine. There's loads of sort of medicines management projects that you could do out there. And clinical pharmacy is sort of very much a new... Um, a new area, I guess, that they're sort of branching into. Like I say, Ismail's the only pharmacist for the hospital, so huge responsibilities. Um, he can be making up alcohol hand rub, but also seeing patients and procuring 
medicines, sorting out storage, um, delivering tablets. So really diverse rain, uh, range of jobs really for, for one person and actually what happens when he's not there. So uh, the hospital in Uganda tends to have interns that come and backfill. And I assume obviously that because this was the first year that the fellowship was offered, you've been in touch with the other the other pharmacists who are also doing their own fellowships. Yeah, so there were 12 Commonwealth partnerships for antimicrobials under that scheme. And then there were Chief Pharmaceutical Officer Global Health Fellowships, which was a sort of separate programme. So you had to be involved in the CWPAMS scheme in order to qualify to go on to the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer Global Health Fellowship. But not all trusts or hospitals were massively supportive of that. We're very fortunate because we look, when we looked at the fellowship, we, one of our questions was, could three of us actually apply for this fellowship or who should apply? Because, you know, it was going to be three of us undertaking that course at the same time. And we obviously have to think about service provision. But our chief pharmacist said, you've got to all go for it. So we all went for it. And we all got a place on that. So there are 16 Global Health Fellows, which is the first time that that particular fellowship has been run. And my goodness, what a steep learning curve. We're still doing it. We're hoping to graduate on the 4th of September. Obviously, things have been a bit delayed with COVID. But part of that fellowship is to actually review what are the benefits to the NHS, if any, what impact is there um, of NHS pharmacists going and helping a Commonwealth country, so a low to middle income country, what benefits can be brought back and what sort of reciprocal learning can be made from that. It's all about networking. It's all about networking, yeah. This episode has been all about networking. You've been doing a lot of that. Yes. And, and, I mean, and so it's a great the, thing. I was going to say, the other guy that we haven't mentioned is um, Dr. Freddie Katutu. So he, when we met him at the start of this scheme, he was a pharmacy lecturer at Makiri University. And then during the course of the last 15 months, he's actually become the Dean of Health Sciences at Makiri University. So he not only looks after pharmacy students, but midwives and nurses and dentistry as well. When you see the pharmacy lecturers in Uganda, they are phenomenal. They really brought our workshops alive. So sometimes we were trying hard to sort of deliver some quite key but fairly boring messages and they'd just get everyone to stand up and just sing a song halfway through just to like wake people up and then we'd sit back down and <laughs> and we'd kind of carry on. But um, yeah, so Freddie's been over for a week as well, so he's spent some time between the universities and BHT. And thanks for putting me in touch with him because he's going to come on an episode of this wait. podcast in August, so that'll be really good. I'm excited to do that. And I'm sure he'll be listening in to see what you've been up to. <laughs> <laughs> all good. It's all good news, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's an amazing project and I really envy you and I hope that when they do launch, hopefully, Series 2 of the Fellowship, that more people can get involved because this is something that I think we should be doing more of. Absolutely. I think this whole experience has completely changed just how I view everything. I'm so grateful for the job that I do in the UK. Yeah, I'm so grateful for the opportunities that we have and just the resource that we have. But also, I have learned a huge amount 
We've been writing grant applications, which I never thought I would do in a million years. And, and we've been looking for how we can continue this health partnership, which is a true equal distribution of, of the work. I think I said earlier that um, the Uganda team sort of had the, the lion's share, if you like, in terms of delivery of the projects. But we have dialed in every month to a conference, teleconference to just catch up and find out how, how everyone's been getting on. We produced all the workshop material for the healthcare workers. And it's a very supportive and sort of all-encompassing relationship, I would say. I would say that Linda and David really make that health partnership what it is, and they're real leaders. So they will listen to the quietest voice in the room. And sometimes that's the person who's got the key to a new idea, some innovative way in to get people on board. And one of the things that we did as a tag on was some crowdfunding. So we raised £500 to buy jerry cans and soap. And these were delivered in March to some of the islands on Lake Victoria, to some of the schools, the health centres, just some of the fields outside the villages. And that was right before COVID kicked off. So the timing couldn't have been more perfect. But actually, it was one of the environmental scientists that said, this is how we should use the money, because he knew what was actually needed in that in that area at the time. So never mind medicines management, let's just get some water and some wash facilities for people. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it's a huge eye-opening experience. I mean, it's incredible and it's a really good opportunity, all while doing your normal job and looking after a family. That's the thing. You said earlier that you will find time for the things that you that you love. And I love this work that we are doing with the Commonwealth Partnership. And I will read that grant application. We will make time to look through presentations. You will find the time if, if, if it's something that you really care about. And for me, this always takes priority. So I looked at that grant application at six o'clock this morning and it was sent before coming into work. I don't think twice about it. There you go. And I don't think I'll give it up. <laughs> Hopefully, as long as they keep us. <laughs> Good for you. So I've taken up quite a bit of your time already. So I will ask you my three favourite questions okay. uh, before we end the podcast. So being a pharmacist means? So for me, I think it, it means that you can be whatever you want it to be. Um, I think there's so much choice out there. I never thought for a moment that I would do anything to do with global health. And now I can't think about not doing global health. So for me, it was I, it was something that I would never have considered before, but just think outside the box. You're, you're proving that, you know, you can make things that you're good at part of your pharmacy profession. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's useful to try to really reflect and sit down where your skills are mm. and where your passions are. I mean, I re I'm only new to education now, but working with students really inspired me to think how we can make them the best versions of themselves. And that's why I'm doing this. And I'm mm -hmm. hoping to inspire young people to really go out there and think outside the box because pharmacy has a crazy amount to offer. And we can only grow and learn as a community. And that's what I'm hoping that we continue to offer. Definitely. So if you had to write a letter to yourself when you joined the register, what would you say? 
For me, it would be never say never because I never thought I would go to Africa as part of as part of my career or as part of my job. And I never thought I'd go and do care of the elderly at one point. So I think don't rule anything out and don't make any vast sweeping statements about what you might not do because you might find that actually that's what you love and that's fine. It's okay to kind of stop in in one place as well, I think, as long as you're making changes and you feel like you're still challenged and making progress. So take the opportunities that are available to you when they feel right to you. Don't feel like you have to step in line just because this is the right time in, in, you know, in the sequence of events, if you like, for a traditional pharmacist. And in 10 years' time, I will be? I honestly don't know. But I hope that we'll still be going out to Uganda to support the team out there. I hope that they still want us in their health partnership. Like I say, it is incredibly inspiring to see the, the level of dedication and enthusiasm that those guys show. And I'm just very grateful for that opportunity. I do think it has changed my whole outlook, not just within my career, but also just in life in general. A change in mindset and being grateful is actually a good thing to be reflecting on. And I'm grateful that I had you today so that I have an episode to launch (laughs) next week. And I'm so happy to be doing it face to face. I'm so happy that we've got to see each other today. And I really appreciate your time. And thanks for sharing so much honesty today. Thanks for telling us all about your experiences and giving us your perspective. Thanks, Amisha. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Pharmacist Diaries UK and on Twitter at Farm Diaries UK. That is P-H-A-R-M Diaries UK. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you can be notified when a new episode is released. Finally, please visit Apple Podcasts and leave me a review as it will help the podcast reach more people. If you have any suggestions for guests you want me to talk to or if you'd like to come on yourself, please feel free to contact me via social media or email at info at pharmacistdiaries.com.